I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Chapter 20. If you're new with us, uh, when you came in, there should have been a guest card on your seat. And if you want to fill that out and drop it in the kiosk in the back of the room, we would love to send you some information about who we are as a church. Or if you hadn't gotten on the mailing list or want more information about joining the church or just want somebody to pray with you or for you, you can indicate that here on the card as well. On the back side of that is a place for prayer requests. We want to be able to pray with you and for you about the burdens in your life that you're carrying. And there are things that we can pray with you or for you about. You can drop that card there in the back of the room at the kiosk in the box as well. And it would be our honor to pray alongside of you for the needs in your life. Exodus chapter 20 is where we are this morning. And we'll read verses 1 to 17 together. And then come back and take a look at the first couple of verses. In Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. They are called in our English Bible, the Ten Words, actually literally in the Hebrew text. And in verse 1 it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and, as heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now in Exodus chapter 20, we find, as we said, the Ten Commandments there recorded for us by Moses as God delivers them to him on the mountain to chisel them into the stone tablets that he would eventually bring down the mountain and shatter the first copy and have to go back up and receive them again and then place them in the Ark of the Covenant. But as we look at the Ten Commandments through the lens of the culture in which we live today, I think these there's probably perhaps no time in human history where they are more relevant in the lives of God's people. Uh, they've always been relevant in the lives of God's people, but no time in human history where they've been more relevant than ours today. And here's why. Because we all have some degree of a moral code in our lives, right? We all have some degree of shoulds and should nots. We all have some shalls and oughts in our lives. But there's perhaps no time in human history where there's been more disagreement on what the shalls and the oughts and the shoulds and the should nots should be, right? There's vast disagreement. 
And so there are all kinds of ways people are trying to establish for themselves their own moral code for how they ought to live. And one of the ways people are trying to establish a moral code for their lives is through crowdsourcing. You know what crowdsourcing is? It's whenever you take to the internet and you seek to obtain information or input into a particular task or a project by enlisting the services of a large number of people out there, basically the opinions of the masses on the internet, right? And there are people who are trying to obtain a moral code, a moral guide for their life by taking to crowdsourcing. In his book, uh, by the, what was the title of the book? Where is it at? I know, I got it in here somewhere. Anyway, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book on the Ten Commandments, um, something about what they are and why we should obey them. Um, I just butchered that really bad. But in, his, in that book, Kevin DeYoung cites this, uh, an article on the CNN web- website several years ago that was entitled, the Behold, the Atheist New Ten Commandments. And in that article, the article goes on to um, explain how an executive at Airbnb and a humanist chaplain at Stanford University tried to crowdsource what they call 10 non-commandments, right? So they solicited input from thousands of people across the globe, and then they selected a panel of 13 judges to weigh in on all the commandments that were submitted. They had over 2,800 commandments or non-commandments submitted in this crowdsourcing endeavor. And here's the 10 that this panel of 13 judges landed on. The first one was, be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. It's one of the highest values of our day. Second, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Third, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Fourth, every person has the right to control his or her own body. Fifth, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eighth, We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Ninth, there is no one right way to live. Tenth, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now listen, for those who are attempting to crowdsource, they might not have money to go out and start a campaign on the internet But those who are attempting to crowdsource their own moral code, let me tell you why that is not helpful. Because at best, it is absolutely and utterly confusing and contradictory. Like even just a a, a surface level reading of these ten non-commandments. right? And while this may have been a publicity stunt by some executives and large corporations, listen, what they expressed was the real values and moral code of real people living in real places across the globe. This is really how they view their lives being lived out. 
And whenever you look at these ten non-commandments, at best they're confusing and contradictory. Look, they say you don't need God, commandment number five, to live a full and meaningful life or to be a good person. You don't need God. And yet the seventh commandment is to treat others how you wish you would be treated, want to be treated, which is the golden rule, which comes off the lips of Jesus in Matthew 7.15. Or 7.12, sorry. Right? And so like they're relying on the Bible to say you don't need God to live a meaningful and full life. Right? In addition, they're called non-commandments, and yet they all sound very commandment-ish. Right? There's a lot of oughts and shoulds and shalls within them. In addition, they're contradictory in the fact that if you look at the ninth commandment or non-commandment, there is no one right way to live. And you go back and compare it to all the other non-commandments in the list, they tell us how you ought to live. Right? How do you square there is no right way to live with you should leave the world a better place than you found it? How do you square there is no right way to live whenever you read you have a responsibility to consider others, including future generations? How do you square there is no one right way to live whenever you say, whenever they say uh, God is not necessary to be a good person, live a full life, you have consequences for your actions. How do you square all of that with that ninth one? You, you, you can't. It's impossible. Right? It's, either, it's either do as you wish or do as we say, but you can't have both. You can't have both. And so it's utterly contradictory and confusing at best. In his book, DeYoung says it this way. He says, the way to find moral instruction is not by listening to your gut, but by listening to God. If we want to know right from wrong, if we want to know how to live the good life, if we want to know how to live in a way that blesses our friends and neighbors, we'd be wise to do things God's way, which means paying careful attention to God's Ten Commandments, the moral code that He lines out for His people in Exodus chapter 20. So over the next 11 weeks, we're going to be working through this, seeing the authority with which God has established the way of life for His people, for them to find flourishing and fullness and freedom in life. And so we'll be working through it. But to get started this morning, where I want to look is at the preamble, how God introduces Himself before He introduces the commands. So I want to read it to you again in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this preamble to the Ten Commandments, right? if you think of it that way, the preamble to the Ten Commandments shows us at least three things that I want us to see this morning. And the first one is this. They reveal, the commandments reveal the God of law. That God is a God of law. Another way to say this is that God is a God of authority. Of authority. Of supreme and sovereign authority. In fact, whenever God identifies himself in the preamble, he says, I am the Lord, your God. And whenever he says your God, he's using the Hebrew word Elohim. That Hebrew word Elohim is a plural of majesty. You're like, well, that, means a whole, that, that tells me a whole lot. Here's what that means. That word, it, when it re, it's, it's used in reference to God, it refers to God's power, to His might, to His majesty, to His glory, to His authority, to His supremacy. Right? That He is supreme over all other creatures. He's, there's no one who stands toe-to-toe with Him. There is no one who is on par with Him. There is no one who is on equal footing as Him. 
that He and He alone is supreme, that He and He alone is all-powerful, that He and He alone has all authority and all dominion and all majesty, that He and He alone has the authority to issue these commands and issue this moral code because he is the one who has brought us into existence out of nothing as our creator and as our creator he has designed us and because he's designed us he has the right to determine for us what is good and deemed right and true in our lives right so this god is a god of authority and a god of law now here, so what I want to encourage you to, us to do as we work our way through these commandments over the next 10 weeks is this, is to embrace the clarity of God's authority. Embrace the clarity that comes along with God's authority. Now I'm, I've said authority a number of times already this morning and I'll say it again. And one of the reasons I continue to highlight that word is because it flies in the face of the perspective the common perspective of individual autonomy in our day. In other words, we are accountable to no one and to nothing. We are absolutely independent. We can make all of our choices and decisions for ourselves. That is the highest value of our day, is personal individual autonomy. And so when we come to the Ten Commandments, God's authority being exercised over us right? It flies in the face of the highest value in our day which is personal individual autonomy. Now, in, there's, there's so much individual autonomy within our culture, particularly in Western American culture, that it's created within us an anxiety. We wonder why anxiety levels are so high. And one of the reasons is because there's, we, we live as if there is no God and we are only accountable to ourselves, so we don't know why we're here, we don't know what we were created for, and we don't know what we should do with our lives. Like two, two, secular, um, uh, two secular sources have brought this to the surface for us. In 1992, in a Newsweek article by Joe Klein entitled, Whose Values? Klein says this, he refers to the question over values in American culture, in the emerging American culture, as a deep, vexing national anxiety about a nagging sense that unlimited personal freedom and rampaging materialism yield only greater hungers and lonelier nights. Now, I want you to hear, I want you to listen to what he says, right? You're like, well, that, that's like a pithy little quote that you read. What does that mean? What does that mean? Rampaging materialism, he says, the result of the materialistic culture that was, has emerged in Western civilization. The result of rampaging materialism is that when we get what we think we want, all it does is create deeper hungers within us for more and more and more and more. And we find that it never really satisfies. And so we get the car, we get the house, we get the toys, and we want more toys. We want a bigger house because we need to store it to big, more square footage to store all the toys that we've got now. Right? This rampaging materialism creates within us what he says is a deeper, is, a, is, a, is, is, is what he says, a, a, a greater hunger that can never be satisfied. And he says also on the other side, he says our unlimited personal freedom of not being bound to or by anyone or anything in our lives 
has created lonelier nights because it's pushed people away rather than brought them in in relationship because you can't be in meaningful relationship with people who will not give up some of their personal freedoms to be in relationship with you. If you're married, you know that. If you have children, you know that. Right? You, that, that's a part of meaningful relationship. He said what it's created is lonelier nights and greater hungers. This unlimited sense of personal freedom and rampaging materialism and it's created a deep, vexing national anxiety, he says. Another secular source that's brought this to the surface is a Polish author by the name of Eva Hoffman. And in her book, called How to Be Bored. Now she is not a believer, but listen to what she says. She's speaking about the limitless number of consumer choices that exist within our culture. And listen to what she says. She says, we, she says, we have choice in every area of our lives, from career to partners, to our own sexuality, to the sexuality of our partners, to how we want to have children, etc., 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 our seemingly limitless number of choices in consumer culture, she says, we live in a very individualistic society, so all these choices have to be made individually. And she says, this is a very demanding condition. We need to know what we want. We need to know what we think. We need to know what our values are. We need to figure all of this out from within ourselves because there's no sort of general code or value system which tells us how to proceed about this very wide range of choice. What Klein calls a deep, nagging sense of vexing anxiety, she calls a demanding condition that puts soul-collapsing pressure upon the individual because there is nothing outside of themselves for, that defines for them how they ought to live, why they are here, why they exist, what they were made for. And so there's all this anxiety that builds in life. Am I doing it right? Am I being true to myself? It's, an, it's, it's a position of anxiety. And in this cultural context, listen, God's authority brings clarity. It brings clarity to life. It brings clarity to why you're here, why you were made, why you exist. It brings clarity. It brings clarity to how we relate to God. In fact, the first four of these Ten Commandments are about this vertical dynamic of us relating to God, who He is, and how we should treat Him, how we respond to Him. It also brings clarity to healthy relationships with others because the last six are horizontal in their orientation about healthy relationships to other people. It gives clarity to the vertical relationship with God, the horizontal relationship with others. It brings so much clarity in a confusing culture that's riddled with anxiety over are we getting it right? Because listen, God does not give us the law just to keep us in line. That's what many people think. That God gives us the law just to keep us in line, right? Keep us straight-laced, walking in the right path. But what God actually gives us the law for is not to keep us in line, but to give us life. To give you life fullness and flourishing because the law listen is not a ladder to climb your way to God but it's the pathway of freedom that you're able to walk in once you know him 
Now, for some of us, that's like, man, that's a little counterintuitive, right? It doesn't seem to make sense that restrictions are the pathway of freedom. Let me respond to that for a minute because let me, listen, what you need to understand, because some of us think that what freedom is, we bought into the false notion of modern American society that says freedom is the absence of restrictions in your life. But you know what real freedom is? It's finding the right restrictions. It's finding the restrictions that fit your nature. Now listen, um, spring is in the air, isn't it? I heard some birds chirping this morning. After those 20 degree days and not, or nights last week, it's nice and refreshing to have some 70s and sunny yesterday. Man, it's good. Spring is in the air. You know what that means for me? That means the bass spawn is right knocking on the door, right? Those fish are beginning to move up shallow and they're beginning to you know, do their annual mating ritual, begin to start to lay eggs in the backwaters and coves. Uh, that means they're accessible. Um, I'm sidelined right now, so I'm, I'm a little anxious. Yes, I am. But, but as they move up into those shallow waters, man, they, those bigger fish become more accessible than they are year-round. And so you, you cruise down the bank flipping and pitching and casting and um, you can catch some really big fish that normally would be in during the summer. There's more you need to know about bass fishing. But in the summer, they'll drop off into the deeper creek channels on deep water structure, a little bit harder to find sometimes. Uh, but this time of the year, they're accessible. Now, I've caught many fish in my life, many fish, off the bank of a pond or of a river, off the deck of a boat. But listen, every fish that I've caught in my life shares one thing in common is that as soon as you pull them out of the water, they are in bondage. You know that? They are dying. Because the restrictions that fit the nature of a fish, that allow a fish to be free, that allow a fish to flourish, the restriction that fits the nature of the fish is that they they are free and flourishing when they are in the water, but as soon as you pull them out, they are in bondage. They are dying. Right When you land them on, when you... Boat flip them is what we call it, right? Whenever you just kind of pop them out of the water and they come flying over the console and land down there on the bottom of the boat, right? And they're flopping around because they need the water to live, to flourish. Because that's the restrictions that fit its nature. And listen, you and I, as those made in God's image have restrictions that fit our nature and as the one who designed us, God knows what restrictions fit the nature with which he's designed us. He knows how we were made. He knows what we were made for. There is no better place to look than to him. And if you want to find fullness and freedom and flourishing in life, then you'll look to him as your designer and the restrictions that he set in place that fit your nature. And so embrace the clarity that God's authority brings in your life. As we work through these commandments, they, they, they invite us, embrace God's authority and see the clarity that it brings. But second of all, not only do they reveal the God of law, but they also reveal the God of love. The God of love. This is to say that not only is God a God of, of, of authority, but he's also a God of affection. Look at how God refers to himself in the text again. It says, he speaks of himself as the God of covenant when he says, I am the Lord, Lord your God. 
Underneath all, the all caps L-O-R-D in our English translations is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. Right? This is the name whenever Moses is at the burning bush and God is raising him up to be the one who would be his instrument of deliverance to go down into Egypt and say, let my people go. And Moses is there saying, well, listen, God, I don't speak very clearly. I kind of stutter over my, over my words. Like, can somebody come with me? Can you give me some kind of sign? Yeah, Moses, throw the staff down. It turns into a snake. Pick it up. It doesn't bite you. It turns back into a staff. Right? So, God, who should I say sent me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. Yahweh has sent you. That's the covenant name that God gives to himself as he enters into covenant with his people. Right? And so God identifies himself here in Exodus chapter 20 as the covenant God, as Yahweh. And he says, not only do I have authority over you as one who has all power and dominion and authority and supremacy, but I also have affection for you, a deep love for you as I've entered into covenant with you. In fact, over and over again in the Bible, what you'll find is that God declares a deep affection for his people and demonstrates a steadfast love to his people. All right, if you go fast forward into the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, you're going to find in three separate occasions in Moses' farewell sermon to the people before they enter into the promised land and he dies outside of it. All right, before he goes in, he, he recounts the law to them in Deuteronomy. He runs it all down again for him. And at three separate times throughout that sermon, he returns to this refrain in Deuteronomy 7, 6, in Deuteronomy 14, 2, and in Deuteronomy 26, 18. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He said, out of all, everything that I've made and all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he says, you, Israel, I've set my affection on you. Elsewhere, he says, it's not because you were the most numerous people on the face of the earth, not because you're the most influential people on the face of the earth, not because you're the most powerful and prestigious people on the face of the earth. But he says, I love you, not because of any of that. I love you because I love you. I set my affection upon you and you are my treasured possession. My most prized possession out of everything that I've made. God declares his affection for his people, but he demonstrates it as well. Listen, if you go into the prophet Hosea, you find God calling the prophet. He says, listen, go and marry a wife of unfaithfulness, one who's going to be unfaithful to you over and over and over and over. And Hosea does. And Gomer, if you're, if you're pregnant, like, that's just probably a name you want to stay away from if you're having a little girl, right? But Gomer, she is unfaithful time and time and time and time again. And God says to Hosea, now that she's found herself through all of her unfaithfulness in bondage, being sold on the slave market as a prostitute, he says, go and buy her. Go and lay your resources down for her. Go and redeem her out of the bondage that she now finds herself in because of running to all of her other lovers. And God says, Hosea, I'm calling you to do this because I want my people to know how I feel about them. Because time and time again, he says, they've been unfaithful to me. 
They've run and ran and chased after other gods. And yet time and time again, I demonstrate my steadfast love to them by bringing them back to me, releasing them from the bondage and slavery and captivity, not only in Egypt, but also the gods of the other nations and the other nation states surrounded them that would conquer them. And he, and he says, listen, I've done it over and over and over again. I've bought them back time and time again. And I want to set an object lesson in the midst of my people to you, Hosea, my prophet, to show my people how I feel deeply for them. I want to demonstrate my love to them. So he declares his affection for them, but he also demonstrates his affection for them over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. God shows that he loves his people. And that because he loves them, his people can grieve him. They can wound him. They can hurt him. And yet his heart is open to them. It shows him to be a God of love. God of love. A covenant God. Who would give his law to his people. And listen, I want you to know that God does not only speak to the nation, but he also speaks to persons. Because as you read down through the commandments, whenever he says, you shall and you shall not, he speaks not, only, not in the plural, but in the singular. You know what he's saying? Not only are these commands that I'm giving to my people as a nation, but they are also commands that I'm giving to persons who are in relation to me individually not just corporately but individually he speaks to persons among them because God is a personal God he's to be known to be loved to be trusted to be honored to be pleased and he can be offended and he can be grieved because he's given his heart to his people and so if God if it reveals God to be a God of authority and law and that we are to embrace the clarity of that authority. I also want to, you to see that the commandments are going to invite us not only to embrace the clarity of God's authority, but embrace the security of God's affection. The security of His affection in our lives. Listen, I don't know, if, if you've got kids, you'll understand this, right? But over and over again, I find myself having similar conversations. I don't know if any of you can relate, but the struggle is real. Right? We'll have this conversation time and time again. And whenever my children violate a particular directive that we've asked them to do, and they rebel, and we correct, and we instruct, right? So best thing to do is instruct before you correct, right? That's just kind of the pattern how it should go. But we instruct and then they rebel and then we correct and we bring them back and they begin to say things like this. You don't love me. Anybody ever got that? You don't love me. Right? You got to be careful not to give away too much. This, on Friday evening we had one of these moments. Okay? Where one of my children had an early bedtime. Okay? Because they decided they were going to pull it'll give it away they, they said they're going to pull the drama card right and just melt down um because they didn't get their way okay and so um they, they began to yell they threw a remote control 
And so at that point, it was time to not spare the rod. And so there was discipline that was exercised, correction, but then there was also an early bedtime that was brought into play because there was evidence that she was exhausted even though she would not, well, let's see, I just gave it away, even though she would not admit it. You knew who it was already, those of you who know my children. Even though she would not admit it. And so as I bring her into her room, she says, you just don't want me to, it, it's like she's just, you know, all worked up. You don't want me to be with you. You don't love me. And I said, no, baby, I do love you. I love you very much. But one of the things you need to understand about the way that you behave whenever you don't get your way is that, yes, that is going to push people away from you long term. And so I want you to experience a measured consequence now. And I'll lay with you and I'll scratch your back, but yes, you're going to go to bed early. You're going to go to bed early. And you're not going to enjoy the privilege of staying up late the first night of spring break. I know that's crushing you. But it's a measured consequence because I don't want you to blow your life apart later on. If I didn't love you, I would let you get away with whatever you wanted to do. You could act however you wanted to act. But because I do love you, there are boundaries, and I've set some parameters. Mommy and I have set some parameters in place. And we're going to enforce those because we do love you, not because we don't love you. And there are going to be correction and consequences whenever you violate those. Because we do love you. You know what? The next morning she got up, she comes over, gives me a big hug, and we, had, we have a great day on Saturday, right? And a part of that, a part of that in the life of a child is whenever there is, when there, when there is law, right? When there is boundaries, when there are guardrails and parameters, and those things are enforced, and you reaffirm your love to them, there is a security that comes alongside of that. Listen, the most insecure children are those who have no boundaries, who have no parameters, who have no guidelines, who have no one instructing and correcting in their lives. They're riddled with insecurity. But there is a security that's born of a gracious instruction and gracious correction bringing them back. And the same is true with our relation, in our relationship with God as our Heavenly Father and we as His children. There's a security that we can know and enjoy right, as we live within the boundaries that He's created, the restrictions that fit our nature. And so find clarity in His authority and em- enjoy the securities of his, of his affection for you, that He loved you enough He loved you enough to instruct you and he also loves us enough to correct us and bring us back whenever we're erring and going astray. So they reveal these two things. They reveal a God of law and a God of love. But listen, finally, thirdly, they reveal the God of rescue. The God of rescue. Because listen, listen, God... I want you to notice the order here in the text. Listen. And don't get this turned around because if you get this turned around, you have something other than Christianity. Okay? You have something. It's just not Christianity. 
It's a very legalistic, moralistic way of relating to God, but I want you to notice the order. God says, I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of bondage. I brought you out of captivity. I rescued you from Egypt. Now, live in freedom. I freed you. Now, live in freedom. Walk this path of freedom. Don't go back to being in bondage again. And here's how to walk in the freedom that I have redeemed and rescued you for. There is a gospel pattern here in the scriptures that shows up time and time again in the Old Testament, but most explicitly in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. That listen, God does not come to us and say, if you will keep my commands, if you will live in this way, then I will deliver you. If you will live in this way, then I will rescue you. If you will obey me, then I will redeem you. He doesn't say that. What he says is, even though you have run as far and as fast away from me as you can in rebellion, I will pursue you out of love for you, and I would lay myself down for you at great cost to myself. And we see it in the person of Christ and in the sending of God's Son to live and die in our place that he would redeem and rescue us. And as he's redeemed, in fact, all the epistles and Paul's, all of Paul's letters start out this way. Here's what God has done. Now here's what you should do. Paul doesn't say, here's what you should do, and then God will do this for you. He says, here's what God has done on your behalf. Now here's how you live. And if you are in Christ this morning, God has rescued you from the penalty and power of sin. He says, now live in the joy and fullness and flourishing that the freedom of, of, of submitting to my authority affords and the security of my affection brings in your life. He's appealing to us to know this God of rescue. And so what we cannot do is take the commandments and make them a ladder to climb to God. As if we climb rung to rung, right? There's ten rungs on that thing, and I can just climb them all. And I can get up to the top because, in fact, what, what we'll find as we go throughout the commandments is that, listen, what God never intended is for us just to merely dutifully observe the external conformity to these commands that He gives. He never intended that. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will come to the people and say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Right? Because you look at that, you go, do not kill. All right, I think I got that one covered, God. But Jesus says, listen, if you harbor hatred in your heart toward your brother, it's as good as murder. And so what we find is that none of us is able to climb the rungs of these commandments in order to reach God. None of us is. And when we get this turned around, we end up trying to treat the commandments as a ladder, not as a pathway. As a ladder to earn God's acceptance rather than a pathway of freedom and walking in the joy of God's acceptance in Christ. See, some of us who grew up in very legalistic contexts this might be revolutionary for us as we work through the commandments and understand that these things are not a ladder for us. Listen, your salvation is not a reward for your obedience, but your salvation is a reason for your obedience. These commandments do not establish our relationship with God, but they express a relationship with God. There's a huge difference between those two things. 
See, our obedience as we seek to walk in obedience to God's commands is our gratitude that it flows from a heart that is overwhelmed with thanksgiving for God's grace. It's not that we say, yes, I'm going to be really, really good and then God's going to be really, really gracious. It's God was really, really gracious and that makes me want to be really, really good. Massive difference. When you get that turned around, you have something other than Christianity. But when you get it in the right order, it is glorious in your life. And you can know His affection as you live under His authority. So the next 10 weeks, right? It's 10 commandments, but we're going to have 11 weeks. So it just wouldn't be right for me to do something short. Felt like we needed a little introduction to this thing. So over these next 10 weeks, we'll see the God of law and we'll see the God of love and this God of rescue who continues to move towards us because none of us are able to measure up to this. In fact, in fact, Paul would say in Galatians, he says, listen, the law was given to be kind of your tutor, to lead you to Christ, to make you realize that you could never climb the rungs yourself. But once you know Christ, it also has this instructive aspect in your life to show you now how to walk in the fullness and freedom of enjoying relationship to Him. So that's where we're headed. I want to pray for us as we close that God would help us to embrace the clarity of His authority and enjoy the security of His affection because He is a God of rescue. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we acknowledge that none of us is righteous. No, not one. That even all, as Isaiah said, all of our righteous acts, not all of our sinful deeds, but all of our righteous acts are filthy, like a, like a, like a woman's menstrual rag, the text tells us. Father, I, I, I pray that we would see that, that none of us is, is good enough to climb the rungs of the ladder to reach our way and ascend to the top of the mountain to enjoy your presence, but you have come down the mountain, come down the ladder to us to bring us to yourself in the sending of your Son. That even in, even in Exodus 20, there was always a need for atonement. There was always a need for redemption. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of all that ceremonial law that was given that he was the lamb that was slain on the altar, that he was the priest who made the offering. And that now he lives to intercede for us at your right hand. And for those in this room who have come to know Christ, they are in Christ, and they have this perfect high priest that the book of Hebrews speaks of, I pray that they would rest in the security of your affection for us, by knowing that your instructions to us are for our good. And they would bring clarity in our lives to know why we're here and what we were made for. So Father, in these 10 weeks ahead of us, would you, would you continue to plant the seed of your word in our hearts? Would it continue to bear fruit that we might be a people who is clear because we have authority outside of us in our life and a people who know your love because you were gracious enough 
to give us boundaries. And I pray that we'll be more and more secure in your love for us. Because you're a God who rescues. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.